Welcome to The Scare Slam, recorded at the Pleasance Theatre on the 11th of October 2019. I keep looking at this like I'm going to launch straight into it. I'm not. I've got a bit for you. That's right. Like you made a noise there like I was going to take all my clothes off, which is not the plan, guys. Maybe later. <laughs> um, and I've got a nice... Enough now. Um, I've got a, a nice bag. I think this is quite a posh um, toiletry, jewellery. Yeah. You've, you've all said different things, but what they add up to is basic bitch stuff. <laughs> so that's the branding we're starting with. Um, what I've got with me is something some of you will have seen before. Oh. <laughs> you made a noise like I was going to bring out like a bag of snot. Um, it's, it is worse than that. You're right, whoever said that. Um, I'm just going to carefully unwrap it. It is intense. <laughs> You're not that close to them yet. Yet. <laughs> Who can see what I've got? Tiny dolls. Uh, I'd like a volunteer from the audience, please. Anybody? <laughs> yes! Yes! You know, you know what, guys? There's plenty to go around, so send up whoever you're shouting at, please. <laughs> okay. Um... Now, uh, everyone who's friends with this person, please just clap so I know who you are. Okay, this just to make it clear, not a popularity contest, this bit. And this person's friends? Yeah, okay, I'm giving that evil pegging. E- evil pegging? Oh. What a Freudian slip for this horror night. Um, right, okay, good. Well, friends and friends, um, I hope you said your goodbyes. Because from this night, these two shall be cursed. <laughs> First person, please step forward. Hold out your hand. Oh, no. Would you like to choose which one curses you? I'm going to pick this one because... She's just... She's straight in. She touched it voluntarily. You know, high-risk car award, guys. Come on. If anyone can see this, look what it does. Its arms move. I'm not going to let you choose. I'm going to choose for you. It's the one whose head has previously been severed and then glued back on. How does it feel? Feel severed. And now so is your soul. You can sit down now. Uh, these dolls belonged to my grandmother. And she describes them as delightful. She has since been burned at the stake as a witch. And the families of all the children she killed have been recompensed. Um, I mean, a lot of people who have met these dolls, met these dolls, uh, say that they're fucking horrible and why don't you burn them? It's mostly my friend Vicky. She says it every day. Are they still in your house? Burn them. Uh, you can't burn porcelain. Well, you probably can, but they'll just look more creepy. Uh, so I'm going to pop them back to bed. Their basic bitch bed. Uh, but... Um, just to let you know, when I first uh, brought these home, so I was helping my grand clear out her house. She was downsizing. 
and um, don't know why she decided to let these babies go. Um, I took them home, and uh, they were wrapped up in this very bubble wrap, really neatly, put them in a drawer, uh, which is incidentally a drawer I keep my cat's treats in, because uh, I thought, that'll help um, protect me from the evil, because if you put haunted stuff in close proximity to dreamies, you're fine. <laughs> Cancels it out. Uh, woke up the next morning. They were on the table. Now, this is not a lie. That actually happened. And the rationale would be, somehow my cat managed to get into the drawer. She can't open that drawer. And put them on the table. And with her opposable thumbs, just gently unrolled the bubble wrap and left them there. So that's probably what happened, isn't it? <laughs> and I do live alone, so... <laughs> Have fun with that thought. So that was to set the tone, to break the ice, uh, and I'm thrilled to introduce our first Frightener of the evening. This piece is The Sad Kid in the Corridor by Duncan Gates, who is a dramatist from South London who likes creepy stuff. <laughs> So the the thing is, I never actually saw it. The uh, the ghosts. Uh, everyone expected it to be haunted because it was a big old school, but that wasn't that wasn't how it was. Um, but my dad bought it to do it up to sort of you know renovate it and sell off the flats. And it was when his company was just starting out, so we all moved into a bit of it because it saved money, I I guess. Um, and my bedroom was on the first floor. It was it was the the deputy headmaster's office, and uh, so in the summer holidays, I'd be in my room like three o'clock doing I don't know playing SNES, and then the swing door at the at the end of the corridor uh, would go, and usually that wasn't like weird because the workmen were there or my family or whoever, and except only sometimes there weren't there weren't any footsteps. I couldn't hear anything coming down the corridor, and I'd. I'd, I'd stop in the middle of Mario Kart and and go over to the door. It had like frosted glass on the top half, so the deputy head could see who was outside back in the day. Um, and I'd go over to the door and listen to for who was for who was coming down. And I could tell people by by how they walked on the floor. The workman had these big boots, but like I I couldn't hear anything. Um. Except then I, I could hear these, these tiny little steps, like, kind of dragging on, on the floor. And it wasn't anyone in my family. It wasn't even my, my, my sister. It was, but it, it was a, it was a kid. It was, it was this kid coming really slowly down the corridor towards my room. And then just, just before it got to the door, it stopped. The footsteps stopped, like a foot or two from the door. And I went to put my head out, and there was this, this, this little boy's tired little sigh. And I looked out, and there was nothing there, just, just, just nothing. It'd be like once or twice a month. I mean, always I, I, and I felt like I, I, I sort of knew him, like this kid, um, like he was this sad little boy who kept getting in trouble. And he got sent to the deputy head's office, and 
he, he, at some point he died. I don't know how, but he died. Uh, and there was this, this is what his life had been. It's like mainly this, this poor little kid. And I wasn't like, because of that, I didn't feel scared for some reason. So I, I, I never really mentioned him at all, except then, then this one day I mentioned him during dinner, something, someone was talking about something else. And I just thought it was relevant. And then everyone was staring at me. Um, and my sister was giggling and my mum had just gone white. And my dad says, well, that's very unusual. Um, we might have to talk about this again at some point. But, but we, we, we didn't. Um, but what did happen was my, my dad got this, this, this guy in, Mr. Akendoli, who was, and he was a priest. And, and they just sort of wander around the house, him and my dad. And they were looking for this kid, obviously looking for, you know, finding out where he hung around. And I knew that they were going to get rid of him. And Mr. Akindoli was, uh, he was lovely and smiley and sweet. And he played little games with my sister and he told a story during, during dinner. And all the time, him and my dad were thinking, right, how can we do something about this? Cause, cause my dad wanted to do the place up and sell it. And he knew that if it's haunted and he knows and he doesn't tell anyone, then, 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 then I don't know. The estate agents kick up a fuss because it can affect the value of the house. So he, he had, he had to be at least seen to be doing something about it by, by getting rid of this kid. And we had, we had kind of, I don't know, a party or something the night they, um, Mr. Akindoli, the night he was going to do the exorcism. And my sister did a little painting and I made him the kid. I made him, I wrote him a letter like saying, I hope you go somewhere nice and, and like where you're not in trouble all, all the time. And that's, and we, that's my mum and me and my sister. We all stayed downstairs while Mr. Akindoli and my dad, they went upstairs to outside my room to, to get rid of him. And we, we played ball games. We had crisps and sweets. Uh, not all the ball games worked because we needed four players and there were only three of us. And my sister was quite young. So she, she, uh, yeah, but we stayed up late. So, you know, shit up. <laughs> and then, uh, then after about, oh, I don't know, an hour, there was this massive, fucking massive crash, like a cupboard had fallen over. And I ran out and my mum was frantic, but she didn't move looking after my sister. I ran out. And up the stairs, and I just crash right into my dad at the, at the top, and he grabs me and says, "It's fine, it's fine, it's fine. It's all okay. Just back down now." And and past him down the corridor outside my room, there's Mr. Akindoli, wearing what's it the what's it called the purple scarf uh, on his knees, and I see his lips moving, and his eyes are closed, and there's there's nothing there, there's nothing else there at all, except. Except this little black, like, wispy thing in the air, like, in front of him, just for a second. And, and I'm trying to look past my dad at what's going on. When this noise goes through my head, this, like, like, just like there's been an explosion and, like, my ears start to hurt and I feel really sick and I'm screaming in pain, but no sounds coming out. And my dad's carrying me downstairs and, and I wake up in the front room and my dad's there and my mum 
he's stroking my hair and, and telling me that it's all right and they're really happy I'm okay. And then he says it's all right again. Everything's sorted out. And I, uh, I went out. I, I needed a loo. I just needed, I needed a wait. Um, and Mr. Akindoli is sitting on the stairs and I catch his eye and he looks so tired, so tired and old. And he's not happy and funny anymore. That's, that's, that's all gone. He looks at me and he says, I don't know if he can tell it's me, but he looks at me. We did a bad thing, he says. A bad thing we did because he was scared and lonely. That's all he was, sad little boy. He, he didn't want to go. He did no harm. And now, oh God, boy. And he just grabs me. He grabs me and he holds me to his chest. He smells like sweat and he's quivering. His belly's wobbling like he's ill. Oh God, he says. He was screaming in fear. His face, he was like a demon, a demon in front of me, his face splitting with fear. I, I can't do this properly. We just kicked him out. And he grabs my face in his hands and he pulls me up to look at his, he'd look him in the eye. And his eyes are veiny and yellow. They're like, like, bad apples hell is a real place he says hell is a real real place and um, and we we did and i'm not thinking i just say no you did you you did and then then i i i pull away from him and and i go for a piss mr akindoli he he never came back he sent us cards at christmas um, but he never put our names on. He just said to you all, and then they stopped after a few years. So I, I, I don't know what what happened to to him. Um, and I I sat there in my room for a few days afterwards, just with the computer off and 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 listening. And the door didn't go, and there was nobody in the corridor. And nobody sighed. You know, if you've ever put your head down a drain, like you can just feel it cold and wet. And there's just nothing. A wonderfully uplifting start to the evening. Next up, we have something that's equally uplifting. This is Bed for Sale, Excellent Condition by Nikki O'Hare, performed tonight by Natalie Winter. Natalie is an actor, a director, and a voiceover artist. That's a triple threat, guys. With a secret love for horror. She can most recently be found in video games. FIFA 2020. Said, said that like a pro, like I've played it and everything. There's others here. Astrologaster, Etherborn, and Dulac and Fay, as well as hosting and producing the Ragged Scratch podcast, a scratch night for bite-sized audio dramas. Season one is airing now, subscribe, and can be found across Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, and soon Spotify, who have a minimum of six episodes before they'll allow you to go on there. Just so you know, guys, really annoying. Have you ever seen a bargain on secondhand online selling sites and then gone to look at it on your own? Because what's the worst that could happen? The seller seemed nice. He even dropped the price a bit.
So you're, um, you're probably wondering what I'm doing. I'm hiding in a walk-in wardrobe at a complete stranger's house. Um, it's not a game. I came to look at a bed he was selling. I rang the bell and, and a small, slightly built mouse of a man answered the door. He asked me to take off my shoes before I went in. New carpets. Um, nothing weird in that, is there? Right? I mean, <laughs> in fact, I thought, well, great, he's a clean freak, right? This bed is going to be lovely. <sighs> he shows me upstairs and then down a long landing to the end bedroom. I mean, his house is, it's immaculate, right? And there's, there's loads of artwork on the walls and, and he opens the door and, and, and waves me in and you know, there was something about him in that moment, and, and it just made me feel a little, little bit uneasy. And um, he smelt of, of soap and, and meat, and you know, he he went downstairs 20 minutes ago, and he said he had to make a phone call, and, and now I'm you know, I'm just scared stiff. I can hear him down there clattering away. Why hasn't he come back upstairs yet? What is he doing? Okay, because, because I'm a nosy cow and, and he seemed to be gone for ages, I, I had a peek in the next bedroom. I really wish I hadn't. I opened the door and it, and it, and it reeked of bleach. There was a few flies buzzing around and... Him. Is he coming? Shit. Is he there? Is he gone? Hello? Okay, so you see in that room, the one I wish. I hadn't looked in, it was, it was dark, right? It was, so his curtains were shut, I think, and, and I, so I flicked the light on and I just... <gasps> I flicked the light on and, and it had plastic sheeting taped to the walls and, and, and it was covering the entire floor and I could see, at least I, I thought I could see... Blood. Right? And, and I told myself not to be so stupid. This guy is obviously an artist and, and this is his art room, right? And, and it's just red paint and I'm being overdramatic and, and I'm just ridiculous. I've watched far too much CSI and I'm just... And that's when I saw it. Large as you like, propped up in the corner, just this... human leg. No body. Just a leg. He's getting closer. I think he's looking for me. I want to run, but I don't... I don't know where he is. Oh, shit, shit. How do I turn this thing off? They all hide in here.
Yay! <laughs> Let's have a little special round of applause for Andy's cameo. <laughs> I mean, he nailed it first take. When we rehearsed this, I just said, just murdery, and <laughs> nailed it. Uh, great, okay, cool, cool, cool. Let's uh, power on through. Keep being scared. Has anyone wet their pants yet? Little bit? Someone just said yes, so <laughs> hope they brought back up. Um, okay, just whip them off, it's fine. Uh, the next piece is The Bistro by Andrew James Brown. Andrew James Brown is a poet, storyteller, and national treasure in waiting. <laughs> yes, very good. Uh, he likes his horror like he likes his beer. Frequent. It was not the first time the bistro had run out of Parma ham. But it was the most inconvenient. Previously, Pete had just fobbed off the few customers who asked for the meat platter with a sliced pepperoni wide boy, obviously sliced at a very acute angle. The Wiltshire ham off his packed lunch sandwiches, having first scraped off the clags of butter and some carefully trimmed Billy Bear. He found that by separating the white part from the pink, he could make it appear that he had two separate meats on the plate. Tonight, though, that wasn't going to cut it. That arsehole of a critic from the advertiser had demanded the meat platter. And unless it matched the description on the menu and was vaguely edible, it was going to be curtains for the bistro. Smiling graciously, Pete bowed and scraped his way backwards to the kitchen and rummaged through the filthy fridge for some deli meats. Predictably, there were none. He slipped on his greasy wind cheater and exited through the fire escape. In a minute, he was pacing the deli aisle of the co-op. There must have been a rush on cold cuts because there was nothing to be had. Not so much as a pack of fridge raiders. Not even a factory floor scraping of cold meat in that shop. Finally, in an estate of sheer panic, Pete purchased a massive lump of uncooked gammon and rushed back to the bistro's filthy kitchen. The chef was busy piercing holes in ready meal lids with one hand and coughing up into the other. As Pete took down the kitchen's only frying pan, laid it on the fat splattered stove and sliced a slither of gammon into it. Predictably, the result was nothing like Parma ham. The chef looked up from his arduous task and, task and asked Pete what he was doing. When he heard Pete's plan to pass off some recently cooked thin slice of gammon as Parma ham, the chef laughed. And that laugh, that stung Pete. This bistro, this business into which he'd ploughed his late wife's fortune was about to go under and all this prick could do was laugh. Pete saw red. He lashed out with the knife still in his hand and caught the chef a glancing blow across his forearm. They both watched in horror as a doner kebab style slither curled down the chef's forearm and into the hot fat in the pan. They stared as his newly rent flesh turned a perfect Parma ham pink. 
While the staggering chef tried to stem the flow of blood with a filthy tea towel, Pete slipped the flesh onto a plate alongside some pepperami, tossed on some rocket and delivered the dish to the now impatient critic. The critic had not had high hopes for the bistro. But she had to admit that the lightly warmed Parma ham was a revelation. In spite of herself, she ordered a second helping. <laughs> Luckily, on Pete's return to the kitchen, the chef had passed out from loss of blood, so it was easy to get a second helping. In the next day's advertiser, the bistro's status as the town's premier eatery was secured, with particular mention of the meat platter. No one knew what had brought about such a turnaround of fortunes, but it was whispered that it had to do with the departure of that horrible old chef. There is now genuinely a platter of Parma ham being passed around the audience, so dig in if you're peckish. Freshly prepared, I saw him do it in the kitchen earlier. Um, if you hear an occasional hissing from uh, this side of the stage, it's because our very geriatric smoke machine has been brought out for the occasion. Uh, I think we give him a different name every year. Uh, we're going to go with uh, Edgar, classic old man name. Uh, but he's just sort of hissing away over there occasionally and sputtering out smoke when he's not supposed to and, and then not when you would press the button. And You all right there, Rebecca? Yeah. She's li- there's literally a lady sat on the side there. It's her job to keep pressing the button. If we planned ahead, we probably could have automated that. It's nice to have work, isn't it? <laughs> it's extra funny because she's a volunteer. <laughs> uh, coming up next, uh, we have got Her by George Morris. George is currently a freelance screenwriter with an intense passion for genre storytelling. Though he has little professional credits, he spent his formative years writing and producing numerous amateur online shorts, thanks to his love of film, and wants nothing more than to have the opportunity to tell his stories to as many people as possible. He also writes features and articles for independent film and television websites, as well as his own personal site, write this down, gmorris.co.uk. I can actually remember that. That's good. He chose a good website. Uh, And occasionally acts in small student films. He is most happy when he's unhappy. And we all just fell in love with George. <laughs> um, so, I don't know if this counts as a story or not, but whatever. Um, so, context, I just finished university, so I've moved back in with my dad. He lives on the Isle of Sheppey, which is a little island near Maidstone in Kent. Um, it's a shithole. <laughs> And mostly my days consist of walking around looking for jobs and something to do. And about two weeks ago I saw a little advert on what the island calls a high street for a local theatre troupe's version of Romeo and Juliet, because no matter where you go, there's always a local theatre group doing a performance of Romeo and Juliet. (laughs) So I went, and... Well, it was local theatre troops version of Romeo and Juliet it's hardly uh, Shakespeare is it <laughs> but they did try something interesting though um, as we came in there was this woman stood at the front of the stage 
and she was this proper Samara from the ring type deal. She had this big black matted hair that, a bit like mine, over her face and she just stayed silent, almost like she was waiting as we came in. And Like proper Morticia Adams type stuff, you know? Um, but the weird thing was, when the curtains opened and the play started, she didn't move. I thought she was going to be like the narrator, you know, like in Fair Verona, where we lay our scene, all of that bollocks, but she, she just stayed silent. And the hair drips like paint off of her head. And so when the thing was finished, I went up to Julia, the woman who played Juliet, ironically, I said, um, what's with the woman? You know, the woman, when you came in, and she was stood at the front of the stage and well, you know what she said. Oh, what woman? There wasn't a woman there. Bollocks. It's typical shitty ghost story stuff, right? So I start playing that over in my head, right? And the, you know that your memory isn't actually your memory. It's just the last time you were remembering something because that's a fact that's going to fuck you up, right? So I go home and I start imagining this woman that keeps staring at me, right, from the stage. But now she's not on the stage. She's in my room. She's in my room, and I keep telling myself it's, it's just not real, right? It can't be real. You ever seen on Facebook or Twitter or Tumblr or whatever the fuck you go on that kind of fact to scare kids that if you wake up between the hours of 1am and 3am, that it's because you're being watched? Well, every single night now... I wake up between 1 and 3 a.m. and I tell myself it's okay. I tell myself she's not real. I tell myself to just turn on the TV or make a sound or whatever because I know what she sounds like now because I keep thinking it over. It's kind of like a... kind of thing. You know, shitty ghost story stuff, you know? And I just want to clarify that I, I don't believe in that stuff. I like that stuff, but I... I don't believe in that stuff. So I tell myself that she's not real. And if I do stay silent in between the hours of 1am and 3am in my loft bedroom where the windows keep opening and I don't open them, that I won't hear anything. I'll just hear the, the birds in the loft or something like that. So I listen. No, listen. You hear that, right? No, look at that. No, please, right? Because, no, because... Because this is all in my head, all right? When she looks at me, when I'm in bed, right? And she stands at the foot of my bed and she talks to me and she... And she whispers things and she, whis she whispers horrible things, right? She whispers and she tells me to do things. And she tells me to go places, public places, places where people have traveled. Because I think that's, that's how she works. Because if you hear her, then you can see her, I think.
and she will tell you terrible truths and she will pull her hair back like that fucking girl from the ring and she's like a parasite she latches onto you because she wants to spread like a virus please tell me you hear her Please, right, uh, please, right, so one person, because then I can sleep. Because if you see her, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. I'm so tired, and I just want to sleep. Else have sweaty palms, <laughs> and also is going to be absolutely terrified if you ever wake up between one and three. That was not a well-known thing people say, and now I know that thing. Uh. Okay. Our next piece is definitely going to just not make us more scared. It's going to be fine. The title is giving me. Great confidence that it won't be scary. This is The Dog Who Saw Ghosts <laughs> by Eleanor Werner. An extract from feature film Hollowshaw. A young Irish woman cut off by the tide passes the time in a pub with the locals telling ghost stories. But when her husband arrives unexpectedly, their reality is transformed into a far more chilling tale. <laughs> In Ireland, some people believe in a monstrous black dog that waits outside your door to devour the souls of the dying. I once saw my great aunt throw in breadcrumbs out the back door while her husband was being taken out the front in an ambulance just hours before he died. She said... It was to distract the gyrene Queen Tuck from following him to the hospital. We had a dog could see ghosts. We used to go to this holiday park in Mayo. It's a real cheap option, you know. Three fields of rickety plastic mobile homes that barely kept out the rain. And that was that was where I first met Michael coming in and out the empty caravans, doing odd jobs about the place. So every year we get a different one. I mean, they're all practically identical apart from the stains on the sofas, but in different places in the park. And we always took Casey with us, but then this one year, she wouldn't go inside the place. And we, we tried everything, calling and calling her squeaking her favourite toy, throwing treats inside. Eventually, Dad picks her up and carries her in. And she loses it. She's 
thrashing and squealing like a mad thing until he drops her and she bolts off across the field and we can't find her the rest of the day. But that night, I get woken up by her scratching at the front door to get in. So I get up and I go out and I can see her through the glass. I can see her shadow. I remember looking strangely large-like. So I open the door and she's gone. So I'm calling her a minute, nothing. And I get bored and I close the door and I head back to bed. But just as I'm reaching the bedroom, I hear her again at the door. Only this time, I can swear that she's inside the caravan, not outside the caravan. And then the light comes on and it's mom got out of bed. So I say, I just heard Casey inside the caravan. And I've got down on my knees to look under the table for her. Mum's just looking down at me like I'm cracked. She says, she's probably run off again. You left the door open. Now, I know I closed that door. But it's three in the morning, and there's no way I'm getting back to sleep. So we sit, and we have a cup of tea, and wait to see if she comes back. But she doesn't come back. And then the next night, same thing happens. Only this time... I don't go out, I just lie there and then I get up and I go towards the door and I know she's inside. I know because she, I can hear her claws sliding down the glass and they're hitting this loose bit of plastic that's at the bottom. So I'm thinking maybe she's been hiding in the caravan this whole time and she's worked out how to open the door when she wants to go out. And then I hear Mom getting up again and putting on the lights, so I go out, and she's stood in the middle of the room, white as a sheet. And the dog's nowhere to be seen. So, she pretends like there's nothing the matter, sends me back to bed, but then the next morning we get a call from the park office, and they've got Casey. Some farmers just brought her around, so we go down to collect her, and she's mad happy to see us, you know? And we take her back, and the second she glimpses that place, she backs up on her lead and digs her heels in. And so Dad tries picking her up again, and she's going mental, so he, he puts her in the car, but she's going mad in there as well. So we're thinking we're going to have to cut our whole holiday short. So we end up taking her back to the office to see if they can get hold of the farmer who brought her around to see if he'll take her the rest of the week. And while Dad's talking to the woman, I see this poster on the wall. It's a missing person. Moira O'Hadley. Fifteen. She's got bleached hair and blue eyes. She looks kind of like me. And in the photo, she's got one hand on the side of her face. And I'm staring at that hand. She's got these long acrylic fingernails. And I know what's happened to her. 
I go straight back to the caravan and I get a knife and I, I lever up the carpet just inside the front door and there's nothing. Not so much as a mark on that chipboard underneath. Looks brand new. So, anyway, Casey, she goes to stay with the farmer for the rest of the week. But that night, I'm lying awake, waiting for it. And it comes again. Exactly the same time. And this time, I can hear it clear as day. It's not a dog's claws. It's human fucking fingernails. And it's desperate. And I'm lying there, shaking. I can't bear to listen to it another moment. And then my, my great aunt Nora pops into my head. And I force myself out of that bed and I go into the kitchen. And I open the bread bin and I reach in and I take a fistful out of the loaf. And I don't dare look down, I just, I open the door and I fling it out into the darkness. After that, the noise stopped. I took myself out of the whole thing over the years, putting it down to rats under the floor or adolescent nonsense. But maybe, maybe, maybe that girl was murdered in that caravan. Maybe the gyrene queen tuck was waiting for her outside that door until I threw them crumbs and her soul could get away. Maybe someone replaced that chipboard underneath the carpet. Someone that did odd jobs around the place. Maybe it was him. So for all you uh, monster fighters out there, I think that's another thing to add to the equipment list, is bread. <laughs> I've already got plenty of salt in the house and iron. Is there anything else we need? Steaks for vampires. Sage, garlic. Yes, yes, yes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to basically create an entire cupboard for these things. Okay. Um, the next piece is really nicely named Delightful, so I'm sure it's just going to be super cheery. Very light. Uh, it's Twinkle Twinkle by Reese Connolly. Reese is a writer and performer with a passion for the ghoulish. When asked as a child what he wanted to be when he grew up, he would answer, a vampire. <laughs> He's still working on it. Hit him up after the show if you think you can help. <laughs> He's part of the Knock Knock Club, a paranormal investigators turned theatre makers group, whose show Last Orders, about the 600-year history of the haunted Old Red Lion pub, is playing as part of the horror festival until the 26th of October. So you should definitely check that out. And he definitely ran here from that show this evening. Uh, so here he is, it's Reese Connolly. 
She stabbed it. Once, twice, three times. When, we, when she was sure she'd pierced the film lid of the lasagna, she opened the microwave and put it inside. The lasagna would taste like fried shit, yes, and burn the roof of her mouth, so that's why she'd bought the wine. It was so quiet in this flat, empty, full of shadows and blank spaces. Maybe she should get a cat. But then she remembered she was allergic. And then she remembered that she also really hated cats. Ping. The volcanic lasagna is done and she hurries to the sofa with it, forking chunks into her mouth as she attempts again to engage with the report on her laptop. The finance report is very important. The client attached to the account is very important. So much so that she doesn't even know who they are, but she imagines they live in a house of chrome and steel, ran by computers, and that their name is double-barreled, you know, in a posh kind of way, double-barreled, not in a my-parents-despise-each-other's-guts-and-have-long-divorced kind of way, like her parents. More lasagna and a big slug of vino. Had her parents ever been happy together? Had they ever shared a smile, basked in a collective glow? Well, hardly, no, but actually, yes, no, there was that one time Once, as she performed at the review that won her the scholarship to the Academy, as the audience applauded, witnessing communally the birth of a new musical protégé before their very eyes, she'd seen her mum and dad turn to each other and hug. They were both beaming and the world was pure love and... Ding! An email slides onto her screen. It startles her back to the now. Alex, her boss, it's meant to read cheery, but informal, uh, but the subtext is plain. We need that report, very, very important, by tomorrow. It's a big account. Get it done, lasagna head. Okay, concentrate, back in the game. Numbers, numbers, finance, finance, very, very important. Peace, quiet, focus, and that's when she heard it first. From nowhere, trill, high-pitched, and desperately tuneless, though the melody was unmistakable. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. How I wonder what you are. She shivered. Only one instrument could make a noise like that. A recorder. (laughs) Like the one she'd had as a little girl, the kid next door must have brought one home from school, but Christ, she'd forgotten how annoying, how utterly repellent that sound was. It cut straight to the bone and it kept going on and on. Through the walls it came, twinkle, twinkle, little star. And then again and again, three times now, straight through. It was ten o'clock at night. This was very late to be practicing, and not even well. Every missed note, and there were many. (laughs) Dear reader, there were many a missed note. Set her teeth on edge. She tried putting headphones in, turned Spotify up loud, but the recorder still penetrated. Penetrated straight through Cher. Almost louder than before. No, fuck this, even if it's a kid. She bangs on the wall, but it doesn't stop. She's not surprised. This kid has got fucking lungs. She couldn't play that long and that loud when she was at the top of her game. Never mind, could she even play well anymore? How many years had it been now since she picked up a twinkle, twinkle, little star? The report lies woefully unfinished on her laptop, but the idea of plowing back into it with this overture is galling. She couldn't. She won't. Bang, bang, bang on the wall. Excuse me? Could you be a little bit quiet, please? Twinkle, twinkle, could you maybe call it a night? Little star, how I wonder. Oh my Christ, will you shut the fuck up? 
up above the world so high like a diamond. She screams. She clenches her fists and she screams. And she is so angry in this moment that if she did have a cat, she'd kick it. (laughs) Fuck this kid and fuck their recorder. They're doing it on purpose. It's a trick. And their parents neglectful, apathetic, tone-deaf parents. They are just letting them get away with it. So she races downstairs. She pulls on a jacket and barges out the front door, tears open the neighbor's gate, storms up the path and raps on the door. No reply. She can still hear the recorder. She knocks again, all knuckles, and decides to keep going. Keep going till someone answers. Keep going till maybe the parents are out at a fancy restaurant. You know, the classy menu and expensive entrees disguising the base, almost business-like discussions about to how to effectively end their hollow and loveless marriage and who'd be lumped with the daughter, the damp squib, the disappointment who touched stardom but couldn't hack it who ran out on her first day at the academy in tears and swore never to go back, who in that one decision removed the final dying ember of fire from a union that had chilled terminally years ago. Or maybe these parents were playing a trick on her too. Or maybe they were drug addicts. The world was on fire, this was broken Britain. And still the recorder... Still the recorder played. How was no one else on this street hearing this? She thought she'd call the police, yes. She's got her phone out and she's dialing before she's even got time to think. 999, what's your emergency? Oh yes, hello, my neighbours, my next door neighbours kid. She's playing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star on the recorder and it's been about two hours now and they won't stop. And I've got a very important deadline for tomorrow morning and prank calls are a very serious offence, mum. It's not a prank call. This is genuinely serious. They hang up. But she could still hear it like it was burrowing into the very heart of her the whine and squeal of the relentless recorder. Then she notices that a window to the right of the door is slightly ajar. Her hands are fixed on it and pulling open before any rationale could question why. She tumbles into a pitch-black room. The music is louder now than ever before, and it leads her, Pied Piper-like, up a darkened hallway to the foot of twisting stairs. She begins to ascend. As she does, she seems framed pictures on the wall. They're a young family. The parents look happy, and they hug their daughter tight in the first photo. She's a pretty little thing in a smart green school uniform. Her mother and father glow with pride. In the next picture, she stands in the kitchen, songbook opened on the table. She must be only six or seven, and her lips are pressed to, ah, yes, the offending article, the recorder. It's sleek, painted red and cast in cheap plastic. The kid's stubby fingers work the holes and she doesn't have to imagine the din because it is only intensifying as she climbs further. How I wonder where you are up above. Photos of the girl on the beach. Other kids play far away in the distance. She doesn't see them though. She is gripping the recorder tight. Photos of a birthday party and every seat at the empty table. The only guest sitting there is the recorder, the red recorder. A photo of the parents, and they are no longer happy. They scream at each other, and they gnaw, and they thrash. And there in the background, framed in the door, the little girl, and she plays the recorder. Another picture, the father has suitcases as he leaves the house, watched by his wife, who is now not his wife, and has no feelings left for the bastard. From her bedroom, the curtains are parted just enough to see the girl and the instrument that she is playing. And then she realizes, of course, the girl is her. She has her face, and the man is her father, and the wife, who is not a wife no more, that's her mother. She almost topples backwards down the stairs. Every photo has become her, the girl on the beach, the party through the school days and the recitals and the lonely, scary nights of shouting downstairs, horrid, constant noise coming through the walls. It's her, it's her, and it's always been her. 
No friends, just music. No family, just music. Practice, practice, practice. And then when she didn't want the music anymore, there is nothing left. And maybe that's why the final frame is empty. The final picture is just her reflection in the glass. A woman who works in an office, shuffling numbers. A calculator, not a person. A tool used by her clients, used by her boss. An instrument. Twinkle, twinkle. She's at the bedroom door now. The melody is so loud that her nose has begun to bleed and her vision jitters and hazes. But she has to see. She has to see the little girl playing and grab that recorder and snap it between her hands. She pushes the door open and bright white light crashes out like a wave. Her sight adjusts quicker than she'd wish and she sees it and her blood is suddenly ice and she wants to scream but she can't. Her voice, her breath is gone, stolen. There before her, in the center of the room, a giant recorder made of muscle and sinew and flesh, red, raw, and throbbing, crimson, blue, purple, and it has many lips, but a big pair at the top, filled with puffs, and something is pressed to them as it blows into it, and the melody plays. It is blowing into a hollowed-out child, a little girl, and she is full of holes that the recorder works its tentacles across and turns the air to twinkle, twinkle, little star all becomes black and there's just the music our next piece is The Summer of 66 by Mike Levanzin. Mike is a former graduate of Rose Bruford's Drama School and has written a ghost story for radio, Harry and the Romans, based on Harry Martindale, who claimed to have witnessed around 20 Roman soldiers emerge from a solid stone wall in the old York treasurer's house. Creepy. However, this story, The Summer of 66, is based on a chilling childhood memory. Red, white and blue World Cup, Willie We all love him too World Cup, Willie In the imagination and landscape of every childhood there is a house A house where a witch lives or a monster roams A house with secrets and whispers the landscape of my childhood was no different. Growing up in Liverpool in the 1960s, my playground was amongst the bricks and rubble from shells of houses, colloquially known as Bondies. Bondies. The scorched remains of bombed out houses. Giant relics of World War II. Made more menacing by the ugly corrosion of time. But these war-torn houses were the original adventure playgrounds, with wooden beams to swing from, broken windows to climb through, and dark, dusty basements to explore. But there was one house we kept well away from. It was the oldest house on the street, built years before our old terrace houses, and in design, looked more like a small Gothic church with its narrow pointed windows 
and dark stone high walls. Curiously, it had survived the bombs, but sometime in its history, someone had tried to burn it down. The reason? Now long forgotten. Despite the burning, much of the structure still remained the same, defined in an ever-changing world, where in that summer of 66, on the very day Bobby Moore picked up the glittering Jules Rimet trophy, my life would change forever. On that glorious day, after watching a toothless Nobby Styles dance around Wembley, I ran out onto the street with my prized possession, a white, size 5, World Cup football. Dribbling between rusty tins and bricks, I was Jeff Hurst. Some people are on the pitch, they think it's all over. Bang! It is now! And with that kick, my prized possession flew high above the wall of the house with the narrow pointed windows. Without thinking, still in my glorious moment, I jumped up and over the wall. But as both feet hit the ground, and with the impact of the jump still travelling through my skinny legs, I felt I had done something terribly wrong. I was the wrong side of the wall. There had always been a silent understanding about this house. You stayed away. I passed it every day walking to school. Clutching my mum's hand, I would dare myself to peek up at the narrow pointed window. But never did. Now standing in its overgrown garden, where everything was wildly dead, I had a sense that nothing of beauty could ever grow here. I also had a sense I was being watched. Thankfully, it was still light, and I could see the white round ball mirrored against the dark basement window. Slowly, I walked through the tall, stinging nettles, and with both hands, picked up the ball. My sense of being watched was growing, so I cradled the ball close to my chest. It was good to hold something familiar, something from the other side of the wall, whereby now... My mum would be getting my tea ready. I wanted to go home. I kicked the ball high above the wall. But as I was about to follow, I noticed something very odd. What I thought was a white round ball reflected in the basement window was still there. It was white. It was round. But on closer inspection, the round shape framed a face. At first I thought it was a trick of the light. But then, the face began to slowly move closer to the window. Closer to me. In that moment, fear was something I could taste like cold metal. Something I could choke on. All my natural instincts to run had been grounded down to stone. It was closer now. An old face. An old woman's face. Full of spite. Bordered by an old-fashioned bonnet, tied tightly with black faded ribbons. And dressed, dressed like something from an old picture book. So close now. 
as the sickening shape was about to move through the window, I realized she was not moving towards me. I was, I was looking at her reflection. All this time, she was behind me. Behind me, moving closer. In grinding moments of time, I could feel my childhood drip away. All my innocence lost. I thought about all the children who never came home. I wanted my mum. I wanted my mum. The police stopped looking for me so many years ago now. But she's always looking. Watching. Sometimes I play in the garden with the other children. But most times I stare out from the narrow pointed window. But no one ever looks up. No one ever will. In the imagination and playground of every childhood, there is a house. A house where a witch lives, or a monster roams. A house with secrets and whispers. Red, white and blue. World Cup, Willy. We all love him too. World Cup. Well, I'm going to finish the evening with um, a light note so that you go away feeling like there's still hope in the world. This is a children's book. Um, little cheer if you've seen or heard of this book before. A little cheer if you've not. Oh, you guys are in for such a treat, learning. Okay, so I'm just going to real quick take you through my favourite story. and I'm going to try and show you the pictures. Um, so this is written for children. Just bear that in mind. This is, I'm going to do voices as well, guys, so uh, <laughs> ready for my cat voice. That's pretty good. This is the dreadful story about Harriet and the matches. It almost makes me cry to tell what foolish Harriet befell. Mama and nurse went out one day and left her all alone to play. Now on a table close at hand, a box of matches chanced to stand. And kind Mama and nurse had told her that if she touched them, they should scold her. But Harriet said, Oh, what a pity, for when they burn, it is so pretty. <laughs> they crackle so, and spit and flame. Mama too often does the same. <laughs> the pussycats heard this. And they began to hiss and stretch their claws and raise their paws. Meow, they said. Meow, meow. You'll burn to death if you do so. <laughs> Nailed it. But Harriet would not take advice. She lit a match. It was so nice. It crackled so. It burned so clear. Exactly like the picture here. She jumped for joy and ran about and was too pleased to put it out. The pussycat saw this and said, Oh, naughty, naughty, miss. And stretched their claws and raised their paws. Tis very, very wrong, you know. They've both had strokes. Meow, <laughs> <laughs> meow, meow, meow. You will be burned if you do so. 
and see, oh, what a dreadful thing. The fire has caught her apron string. Visceral images here. Her apron burns, her arms, her hair. She burns all over, everywhere. Then how the pussy cats did mew. What else, poor pussies, could they do? They screamed for help, t'was all in vain. So then they said, well, scream again. <laughs> make haste, make haste, meow, meow. She'll burn to death, we told her so. So she was burnt with all her clothes and arms and hands and eyes and nose till she had nothing more to lose except her little scarlet shoes and nothing else but these was found among her ashes on the ground. And when the good cat sat beside the smoking ashes, how they cried, Meow, 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 what will Mama and Nursey do? Their tears ran down their cheeks so fast they made little pond at last. You can see the pond by the ashes and the shoes. So, moral of that story, cats are bastards. (laughs) Will not save your life. Second and final story from this book, which is by Dr. Heinrich Hoffmann, by the way. Sick fuck. (laughs) This is... This is the story of little sucker thumb. Does anyone in the audience still secretly suck their thumb? I heard a little, yes. (laughs) Yes, I do. It is my shame. This might put you off. (laughs) Also, fucking mama's back. (laughs) Neglectful bitch. One day, (laughs) mama said, fuck it, kill all my kids, why not? (laughs) One day, mama said, Conrad, dear, I must now go out and leave you here. But mind now, Conrad, what I say. Don't suck your thumb while I'm away. The great tall tailor always comes to little boys that suck their thumbs. And ere they dream what he's about, he takes his great sharp scissors out and cuts their thumbs clean off. And then, you know, they never grow again. (laughs) Mama had scarcely turned her back. The thumb was in. Alack, alack. What a twat. I mean, look, here she is telling him, don't fucking do it. Next frame, it's in. And he's also popping a squat, which is a bit weird. The door flew open. In he ran, the great long red-legged scissor man. Oh, children, see! The tailor's come! And caught out little sucker thumb. He's borrowed those scissors from someone who's opened a fate. Snip, snap, snip, the scissors go. And Conrad cries out, Oh, oh, oh! Snip, snap, snip, they go so fast that both his thumbs are off at last. Which I think seems harsh because he was definitely only sucking one thumb. But no. Mama comes home. There Conrad stands and looks quite sad and shows his hands. Ah, said Mama. I knew he'd come. (laughs) To naughty little sucker thumb. So there you go. Um, Thank you for being an absolutely fantastic and responsive audience. Um, And we've had an absolutely cracking lineup of performers. This is our fifth annual Scare Slam, and I think it was probably the best we've ever had. Um, Huge thanks to Pleasance for being wonderful um, hosts, to uh, the organisers of the Horror Festival, um, particularly Katie, for being brilliant. Uh, and um, let's do a little round of applause for all the volunteers because everyone here is voluntary so that's all our performers, that's all our writers that is our technician and that is all of our front of house staff big thank you
uh, I also I also realised I think I neglected to introduce myself. Hi, I'm Ellie. <laughs> Pleasure to meet you all. Uh, I and the dolls will be available for chats afterwards. You can touch the dolls, but don't touch me. Um, <laughs> unless we get on really well. Uh, as I say, live alone. <laughs> Got a cat. Single. Um, <laughs> if you want to find out more about our theatre company, we are Blackshaw Theatre, and we are all over the internet, mostly the good parts. Um, so far, as far as I know, we're not in the porn bits. Um, we edge on to the cat photo bits, uh, but we are mostly on um, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. All the information is on your programmes. Um, and we'll be back again next year for the Scare Slam, so I hope we'll see you all then. And thank you very much. Good night. The music used is Come Play With Me by Kevin MacLeod, licensed under Creative Commons at Incompetech.com. You can find us on Instagram and on Facebook at Blackshaw Theatre and on Twitter at Blackshaw Update. <laughs>